this these champions had been found put placing essentially placing lead balls in their fish to make them weigh more so they could win fishing competitions and they are they a grand jury has now indicted them on four felony charges relating to fraud and misrepresentation and things like that man a grand jury what a time well it's just crazy to me that a grand jury has indicted uh fishing competition winners of all things right that's what i'm saying like you, you would never really think you'd hear grand jury indicts fishermen in this <laughs> Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water, one podcast. I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor of Water and Waste Digest. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we talk about the EPA's proposal to add PFOS and PFOA as hazardous substances to Superfund. We also touch on the Jackson, Mississippi water crisis and funding coming from the bipartisan infrastructure law for drought resiliency in the West. Finally, our interview this month is with Steve Drangschult, account executive with Trinex. We spoke about smart water and how the digital transformation is impacting the water industry. We also dived into machine learning and digital twins, and Drangschult shares how you can bring the digital transformation to your workplace. But first, Bob has some news to share. So we have been covering this proposal from the EPA to add PFOA and PFOS as hazardous substances under the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, referred to as CERCLA, but more commonly known as Superfund, for months now. And on November 7th, the industry the public comment period for the proposal closed and industry associations shared their public comments with us as they submitted them to the EPA. And we have a news item on the WWD website if you'd like to read some summaries from each of them, but I'm gonna share a couple of the high level bullet points here just to keep you informed. So in short, there was opposition to the proposal as it was currently written. We have talked about this before and we've mentioned some of the opposition statements on the podcast, but I'll reiterate some of the themes that I noticed in reading these comments that were presented on November 7th. First, there was reaffirmation from all agencies that utilities treat water to remove these chemicals and do not generate them. They are not proliferators of them. They do not create them. This is a position that has been held to indicate that utilities should not be held liable or be considered Superfund locations under such a proposal. Second, they all noted the unintended consequences of the proposal as it currently stands. Due to the proliferation of PFAS across the country, which we know it is very widely spread, the common practices of land application and surface disposal for biosolids, so on that wastewater side, the impacts of this proposal extend also to the agricultural sector and impact U.S. food sources in addition to just the water and wastewater sector. Third, most of the associations raised issue with how the EPA analyzed the economic impacts of such a proposal. WEF, NACWA, and AWWA all noted how the analysis only accounted for the reporting costs associated with this proposal and with this particular element of CERCLA. To me, this read that the cost of treatment, the cost of remediation, and the cost of ongoing reporting were not figured into the economic significance of the circular designation and as such these agencies have opposed this particular aspect of the proposal as it was written now lastly i wanted to note some of the more nuanced positions uh there's one from ASWA and there's one from awwa so in ASWA's comments the association of state drinking water administrators it noted there are impending drinking water regulations for pfas that will establish an mcl and an mclg and if this circular proposal were to go through ASWA urged EPA to consider the impact 
that circle of proposal will have on the utilities who will soon need to comply with MCLs and MCLGs for PFAS, as it could effectively designate those plants as Superfund sites. Now, the second thing is from AWWA, which shared a nuanced position on enforcement because the the proposal as it is written indicates that the agency appears it will rely on enforcement discretion to handle all of these small details on a municipality by municipality basis, which AWWA says could overburden the agency and delay remediation efforts. So all that to say, there's a lot of information on this, a lot of nuanced takes. Each of the comments is actually rather long. They're about 10 to 20 pages each. So I really encourage you to go to the Federal Register website to read them in full and get a complete understanding of the positions from each of them. A lot of them also come with numerous bullet points of exact specific things that they either agree with or don't agree with. So I think that's an important uh, takeaway as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's certainly a lot to unpack there and keep learning and reading. <laughs> yeah, I apologize for taking up so much time once again on this issue, but it's such a big impact. It can have far-ranging uh, effects, not just on the water and wastewater sector, but like I said, on the agricultural sector when it comes to land application. You also have hauling and you have solids disposal. So land landfills, how are they going to manage these if they're considered hazardous substances? Are they also now Superfund sites? So there's a lot of spider webbing essentially of this of the impacts of this proposal and i think it's really important that uh we stay on top of it and really understand the nuance of it and kind of where epa is coming from because they have indicated over the course of months now that the intention of this is so that they can hold polluters accountable and as do i even mention that they they claim they said in their statement that they're taking a neutral position on it well there are some things that they don't necessarily agree with they're neutral to the overall idea because they recognize the importance of holding polluters accountable and the problem that NAQA and awwa and wef all see is that as it currently stands it doesn't seem like it's going to effectively do what the epa is setting out to do well, I agree it's important to cover. So thank you for debriefing and sharing all of that. With us. <laughs> I've been yeah, I've been up to my neck in, in comments this past week. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, we are gonna dive into a little bit of other news first, but we will make sure that you know every all the coverage is linked in the show notes so everyone can read um everything there is about this. Um, but in other news, the US EPA has declared that Jackson, Mississippi's water is now safe to drink just a little over two months after a water treatment plant failure. Um, but Governor Tate Reeves has extended the state's state of emergency order for the city of Jackson's water crisis to November 22nd. Uh, Reeves first issued this order on August 30th following torrential rain and major operational failures at Jackson's main treatment plant, the OB Curtis water treatment plant. Um, so they're working through it, but like I said, the state of emergency order is in effect until November 22nd. So we'll be sure to keep everyone posted on that. Um, and then our final news item, the Department of the Interior recently announced $210 million from the bipartisan infrastructure law will be used for water storage and conveyance projects in the West in the wake of severe drought. So the projects are expected to develop over 1.7 million acre feet of additional water storage capacity, which is enough water to support 6.8 million people for a year. The funding will also invest in two feasibility studies that could advance water storage capacity further once completed. Um, for contacts, the bipartisan infrastructure law um, has is allocating $8.3 billion for 
Bureau of Reclamation Water Infrastructure Projects over the next five years to advance drought resilience and expand access to clean water for families, farmers, and wildlife. Um, but Bob has a few notes about funding as well he'd like to share. Yeah, so we know that just before WEFTEC, so around the end of September, the EPA did approve state intended use plans for 18 states to disperse money through the bipartisan infrastructure law to those states. We also just received some information from a couple of states that uh, they are now have official projects that they are going to be funding with this money. For example, in Illinois, there is $70 million in SRF that is going to 13 projects and 11 million of that 70 million is principal loan forgiveness as well. And then in New York, we know there's $176 million in clean water state revolving funds reaching a number of projects as well. So we have news articles on WWD about both of those particular uh, states and what they're doing there. We'll be keeping up track of some of the other states as we hear from them as well. Awesome. Well, with that, we are going to dive into our interview with Steve Drinkshall again, who is account executive with Trinex. So here is our interview. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Talking Underwater interview. I am joined today by Steve Drangschult, who is an account executive with Trinex, and we are going to dive into smart water, digital water, all that good stuff. So, Steve, thank you so much for uh, being here today. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Katie. Yeah, absolutely. So to get started, can you first just kind of tell us about Trinex and what it does and, and what it, what's going on with it? Yeah, so Trinex, um, I think of us as big data to big dashboard. Uh, that's what I like to think of our products as. We develop applications that are helping utilities protect public health. Um, we build those digital solutions that solve really challenging water problems. And uh, we, I think all of us have learned that being data rich and knowledge poor doesn't really lead to very good decision making. And so our applications are really focused on on really good decision making and helping utilities um, prioritize the work that they need to do. Uh, one of our uh, one of my favorite applications we produce right now um, is called Leadcast. It's about LCRR compliance for okay. utilities with drinking water, and it's web based dashboards. It has customer portals and self reporting, machine learning, all the topics I'm sure we'll get into as we talk here. Uh, but these inventories are perfect examples where an application is necessary because there's no way we're going to dig up all these materials and not use some amount of math, statistics, and computers to help solve these problems. So that's what Trinex is about. Trinex is about um, trusting in what's next by building. Uh, digital sustainable solutions that help our utilities and communities. Awesome. And yeah, I definitely want to dive in to, uh, you know, machine learning, digital twins, all that stuff. But first, I kind of want to know what smart water trends are you seeing right now in the industry? I mean, I think the biggest one is that adoption has finally taken hold. Um, I think we're at a point where um, you're no longer considered an early adopter if you're jumping into digital water or smart water solutions. Um, our industry, by just its very nature, is a very risk adverse industry, which tends to sort of take us off the bleeding edge of a lot of technologies. And we're we're sort of in that late adopter or laggard position. 
Um, but now I think uh, through a number of drivers, we've realized that the, the risk of not implementing digital solutions outweighs the risk in doing so. Um, these are, you know, kind of personal and professional, right? The pandemic sort of escalated sure. our own digital maturity on personal levels, but then on professional ones too, when we all had to work from home. I think the workforce challenges that we're facing in our industry are pushing uh, pushing more people into digital adoption because of the re- either the retention in the field or the increased reliance on data versus people now. Um, and then you just simply have a generation of people who are in the workforce and are completely comfortable with some of the digital solutions that are out there now from everything from banking to getting a ride, to making friends. I mean, almost everything we purchase is exclusively built on an application, Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's an Uber or a Lyft, a banking app, Bumble, Amazon, (laughs) uh, you're just using apps for everything. Right. Um, I'd also say another trend I'm seeing is that the uh, regulations we have now are very data-driven and they're very data-heavy requiring some of this adoption to be able to communicate with customers and regulators and be transparent about what's in water. Um, Kind of three big data things I'm seeing are um, like PFAS regulations. They're starting to take shape. They're ultimately gonna result in some kind of uh, fate transport destruction modeling, which is gonna touch stormwater, wastewater, drinking water. Um, I, I talked about lead and copper inventories. That's another big data. Um, idea where most utilities aren't just going to get away with a simple spreadsheet. Um, It's going to involve mapping and databases and field research um, and customer engagements. And then something that I've been passionate about in my career for a long time is um, SSOs and CSOs Mm -hmm. on collection systems and how the public is either notified or not notified about those things. And we're starting to see a lot more short duration notification requirements. And how are you gonna do that unless you have a a direct way to get in there with your customers and you're monitoring your system and you trust the data coming out of it. So I think the days of people, um, uh, the days of throwing more people at a problem are kind of over. That's, that's not coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, and the amount of data we have can dwarf any number of resources in terms of human beings that you might be able to throw at it. So, Yeah, well, I think there was a lot of good information to unpack in there, but I want to go back to something you said in the very beginning yeah. of that answer. And you kind of mentioned how the risk of not you know, adopting these smart water and digital trends is bigger than if you aren't doing them, you know? So talk about those risks and what, you know, whether it's, you know, manufacturers, municipalities, what people can do to mitigate those, those risks when adopting these practices. Definitely. I mean, one thing that um, inevitably will come up when we start talking about data is um, security, security and sustainability. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we used to rely a lot on paper files or hard copies on people's desktops. Um, Sometimes it wasn't even written down. Sometimes it was just the knowledge in somebody's head. Well, that data isn't secure. And those represent huge risks to utilities and their customers. Whereas now we have cloud-based solutions. Um, Everything is secured and encrypted by by super smart people at Amazon and Google. Um, And they realized a long time ago that data is costly to collect and even more costly to lose. And so the 
the risk now is, well, what happens to that data once it's out there in the cloud? Who can get at it? Well, the nice part is applications in the cloud are easily updated, uh, either for security reasons or for just functionality reasons. The maintenance of that digital infrastructure um, is way better done by these large server by these large server providers than it is by individual IT groups. And so they have as much vested interest in securing your data and storing it um, as you do because they're doing it for thousands of companies and they invest billions of dollars in that infrastructure. And so uh, they can afford to maintain it. They can afford to upgrade it at, at a scale that no utility could ever do. Um, and then the pace of the technology improvement is a lot faster than um, most of our clients and utilities uh, can keep up with. And so being able to adopt that mindset that we now have um, providers who do this better than we do, that's a good mindset to get into and realize that um, there are people who will secure the data, who know how to maintain it properly, and who can um, give some long-term sustainability to what our what our uh, public utilities are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And you also touched on how the pandemic has brought about this need for this this certain data, but also I kind of want to dive into how we have an increase in both storm intensity and storm frequency. And so from your perspective, is that increasing this need for this smart water management? Is it making the innovation in the in smart water management quicker? Or what are you seeing there? Yeah, I mean, I think the expectations of customers is much higher now than it was in the past. Mm -hmm. The idea uh, that flush and forget was sort of out there, I think for a lot of people still is present, but they also are just more comfortable with data and applications now than they may have been in the past. Mm -hmm. um, I was even thinking about my own um, uses of data and I love the weather app, for example, <laughs> I'm a cyclist. So I always wanna like know what kind of gear I need to be wearing for what mm -hmm. kind of cycling I might be in for. Well, I think it used to be a joke that, you know, Weathermen were always wrong. They didn't know what they were right. talking about and all those <laughs> things. But man, my my Apple Weather app is amazing. It is spot on to the hour now. Well, how did it how did it get so much better? Well, it it was built on machine learning. It was built on thousands of observations and thousands of features and pieces of data that now when those things change, we know what to expect. And so, like what you shared there in terms of rainfall intensity. Uh, flooding intensity. I think our customers expect us as utilities to be protecting them and to know where those problems are before they occur mm -hmm. so that we're preventing them, not just reacting to them. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you talked about machine learning. So I'm wondering if you can dive into, you know, explaining what machine learning is, what these digital twins are, and what these different kind of, you know, factors are when we're talking about smart and digital water. Definitely. Uh, well, one of the things that I've come to appreciate about machine learning is that it's a very specialized skill that has a lot of discipline around it. The people who are doing machine learning, uh, known as data scientists commonly, um, they are incredible people. And I get to work with two really fantastic data scientists, uh, Shervin and Katie, and uh, they educate me a lot on what it is and what it's not. 
Um, I know machine learning, it sounds very sort of 1980s Terminator-esque, <laughs> right? Um, like, you know, AI is going to take over and become conscious and, mm-hmm. and do all these things. Um, that's not really what it is at all, right? Uh, machine learning is uh, we build and we test mathematical models to look at data and create patterns. And computers are able to do this in a way that no human being can do it because we think we tend to think in two and three dimensions. Well, computers can think in an infinite number of dimensions. And so because of that, they can find patterns that we can't even conceptualize in the same way. And so the complexity of those models that are built can be a challenge and feel like this big black box, mostly because we don't understand the how. Um, But, you know, Katie and Shervin talked to me about this analogy that I really liked. And it's about um, how do you know the difference between a cat and a dog? Well, it's based on thousands of observations. You've seen thousands of cats. You've seen thousands of dogs. You you know about the weight of one or the height, the distance between their eyes, their color, their fur, their paws. Um, computers do the same things with data. They look for those features and attributes that create the different classes of animals in this case, and then apply those features and classes to make guesses about other ones. And so like in our LEDCast application, we use machine learning to guess, is it lead or is it non-lead? Okay. Very, very clear distinction. Now, if I showed you a horse <laughs> in, a wor- in a world where the, you had only seen cats and dogs, you would still make a guess, right? The computer would still sure. say, ah, that's a dog or, or whatever. Right. But if I gave it thousands of pictures of horses, Now it knows, oh, that's not a cat. That's not a dog. Ah, that's a horse. Again, that's how we train a mathematical model Mm -hmm. or these um, machine learning systems on data. Um, Just like you can't really explain very easily how you know the difference between a cat and a dog. Right. We can't really explain the the way a computer makes these patterns in that same way. And that's why we call things like neural networks or machine learning or artificial intelligence because we don't have the language Mm -hmm. and the fluency to be able to describe it any other way okay that is so interesting and such a good metaphor (laughs) (laughs) i mean another thing that i think another um metaphor they gave me that i also like in the same way is around um when we talk about digital twins yes right and in digital twins um it's a, it's actually a horrible term because it makes you think that the physical and the digital thing are a, a mirror of one another, the way that you would think twins are. Um, and my background is in collection systems. And so uh, models are a big deal when it comes to predictions and analyses. Um, but when we talk about digital twins, we're not making a physical model of a system. We're making a mathematical model of a system. And a good analogy is the way Um, a doctor might go about making a diagnosis. Now, a doctor doesn't actually really even need to see you in the flesh to make a diagnosis. What they need is certain pieces of data. They might need blood pressure, O2 levels, temperature, your family history, tons of features. And so with that set of data, they would be able to make a prediction about what disease you might have. Um, the same thing is what we're doing with digital twins in the water space. 
What are the pieces of data that we need in order to make a useful prediction about the thing that might happen? Um, it doesn't mean that we build all the pipes in a picture. I mean, we all love to look at it because that's <laughs> that's how we see it. But all we're really doing is representing what happens within that system as math. And so what has made this so much more possible for us is, is cloud computing, the way that data is processed faster. We can, we can make almost real-time um, decision-making between sensors and models and data. Our uh, Trinix has built a technology called Pipecast that does that, where it takes in lots and lots of different types of data from all over the collection system or the model, and then um, projects out decisions and predictions. Again, it doesn't have to, we make it look like it's a collection system, but it doesn't have to. It's mm -hmm. really just, um, just a math twin of this thing. And um, we use digital twins all the time in our lives that I think we just don't even recognize. Um, take the ads that you see on social media. That's really a digital twin. It's a digital version of your habits that they're creating in order to reflect the ads that are most likely to move you in a decision too. Um, and, you know, it looks at what you like and what you just, mm -hmm. what you subscribe to, what you visit, um, and then creates a model and tests it with new content and updates over and over and over. Um, and social media has recognized that, that you're not the customer, you're the product in that case. And so you can think like, oh, these digital, this is a horrible, horrible thing. But getting back to water, our systems can have that same kind of targeted accuracy to them that something like an ad can. And we need these tools because our systems are hyper complex. Mm -hmm. um, they have really strong regulatory requirements attached to them. And ultimately our customers expect good, clean water delivered right. to their homes. They expect good, clean water delivered into the environment. They expect public health goals to be met uh, because that's what makes our communities great places to live. Um, and so we have these multi-billion dollar assets within our hands and within our communities that they've entrusted us with. And so I think having a digital tool to make some decisions is a pretty reasonable ask when it comes to the expectations they have. And, you know, every year there are millions of dollars allocated to maintenance and improvements and services that we provide. So why not spend a portion of those uh, funds given to create a better decision-making tool for how to spend it? Absolutely. And that kind of leads into another one of my questions is, you know, we are in a time when a lot of our country's infrastructure is aging and is in need of maintenance and repair. Um, and how can, you know, these digital assets play into that and make it make it better, help us improve our infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly technologies that are being used um, out in collection systems for uh, defect coding pipes or for conducting condition assessment within treatment plants, um, whether that be on uh, mechanical assets, vertical structural assets, or horizontal structural assets. So that kind of da data being collected over time can help us to have enough to build a, mo a predictive model to help uh, know when things are gonna fail before they fail. And as utilities, um, I worked for utility in Seattle for a long time, and we were planning our budgets multiple years 
ahead of the needs that we had. Mm -hmm. And so having that data available doesn't have to be precise that, hey, in 2026, this pipe is going to fail. But what we need to know is uh, what is the likelihood and accuracy that a portion of our system will need replacement in 2026? And then we collect that amount of funds to help then prepare going forward. And so I think, again, big data to big dashboard, mm -hmm. that sort of model can help us at a utility wide level to make those decisions uh, where they matter most, which is ultimately in the pocketbooks of our customers, because they're the ones who are funding these improvements and these replacements. And usually they're, they're setting the expectation level that says, hey, when it rains at this level, you know, I don't want my home flooding. Mm -hmm. So that is, that is the track from utilities having strategic plans to having implementable digital solutions that say, when we do this, we can meet your expectations in these ways. Yeah. Absolutely. And Steve, one of my last questions for you is, what advice can you give to any of our listeners who are looking to implement some of these smart water practices into their their jobs? Where do you think they should start? What should their first steps be? What can you tell them? Yeah, I mean, one one really kind of low bar uh, solution is just increase your own digital literacy. I mean, if there's a term that's being used that feels very uncomfortable and, and uncertain, Google it. There's going to be enough web pages on whatever that term means for you to even understand what it's about. Um, I'm not from a software background. I have a traditional civil engineering background. I did chemical engineering. I worked as a practitioner for 15 years as a project manager and engineer. Uh, digital solutions, software applications, this is not my my bag, so to speak. <laughs> but I've learned a lot by talking to really smart people, by educating my own digital fluency, by trying to find analogies in my personal life that relate to my professional life. I read this great book called The Digital Mindset. Um, uh, the subtitle is What It Takes to Thrive in the Age of Data, Algorithms, and AI. This is a fantastic book. Um, even just for folks who are working remotely, uh, more so than um, in the office. This is a fantastic book because it okay. talks about behaviors that we need to have when working with computers. And so I think, again, um, the adoption of digital technology has a lot to do with your own comfortability with mm -hmm. that. And as uh, civil engineers, we're used to knowing everything there is to know about how to put a pipe in the ground, the right pump to pick, and the right treatment process that's needed. Well, in the digital age, we need to know uh, we need to know more about how our computer infrastructure works, how our data is used, how we can make better decisions and informed ones that aren't based on gut feel or some textbook we read 20 plus years ago in college. Right. Now we got to go back to being learners again and really increase that digital fluency for ourselves. Absolutely. Well, Steve, my last question for you is, is there any, and I know we could talk about this for hours, but is there any final, you know, notes or anything you want to share before I, before I let you go that we haven't talked about already? Yeah. I, you know, one thing is um, computers won't save us. Humans will save us. <laughs> and the work that we do is for humans by humans, the, the computer, the data, the model, that's all just part of the tool. But if we forget that 
if you're not a practitioner and you don't have any domain knowledge of what you're doing, how you use that data could be ethically irresponsible, or it could result in the wrong types of decisions that have really severe impacts in our communities. And so um, when working with technology and working with software and applications, the goal is not to eliminate the human being from that. We absolutely want that person at the helm of the keyboard. But what we want to do is take away some of the more data intensive, harder parts mm -hmm. so that you can focus on who are my customers, how am I making those decisions, and am I making them in a thoughtful, coherent way that I can explain. Absolutely. That is a great final note, because I do think, you know, sometimes people worry if there's too much of a of a digital shift, you lose that human element. So it's, you know, yeah. I, I agree with you. We don't want to lose that human element. It's still by humans for humans. So I think that's a great, a great insight to share. But um, Steve, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really, really appreciate it. And um, thanks for sharing all your insight and good metaphors with us. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Katie. And again, I couldn't do this without... Um, a really good team of folks at Trinex behind me. So I'm grateful for their insights and intuitions as well. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Steve, for that interview. It was great talking to you and getting all of your insight on smart water and digital water and all that good stuff. So thank you again. Um, before we sign off, we have a little bit of housekeeping. First, I will be attending the NGWA Groundwater Week in Las Vegas, December 6th through 8th. Um, if you will also be there, please shoot me an email so we can catch up. Um, and that's it. I'm going to throw it over to Bob. Yeah, for me, I am a juror for the Bentley Year in Infrastructure Awards. I will be attending the live ceremony on November 14th and 15th, and the winner winners will be announced at that time. I urge you to check out the WWD Twitter account as well as my Twitter account for some photos and tweets from the live event. I also, as always, would like you to subscribe to the YouTube channel for WWD. Starting in 2023, we will be rebranding from Water and Waste Digest to Wastewater Digest, so you can find our YouTube URL at www.youtube.com slash at Wastewater Digest, all lowercase. And with that, don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also reach us at talkingunderwater at endeavorb2b.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.